Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 18 of Logicast, the AWS News Podcast brought to you by Logicata. I'm Carl Robinson, CEO and co-founder of Logicata, and I'm only joined this week uh, <laughs> by my colleague, John. How are you doing this week, John? Oh, uh, do you want the real answer? I'm stiff, I'm sunburned, and I'm very lonely. I know I said that one of us should take a week off, but the guest seems to have taken a week off. Yeah, exactly. It does feel quite quiet in here, just me and you, uh, after uh, a three-week run of yeah. uh, of having guests on the podcast. Uh, but uh, good news is we've got one booked for next week. Uh, bad news is just got to put up with me and John, who, as you know, is part of the furniture for uh, for this week. Um, so um, if you if you're new to the podcast, every week I uh, collate a list of AWS news which I share via my weekly AWS Roundup newsletter. And then John and I pick a subset of the articles from the newsletter that we want to talk about in a little bit more detail on the podcast. So we've got um, a set of articles this week. And the first one um, is about a new feature in the AWS Management Console uh, called Private Access, uh, which was made generally available last week uh, by AWS. Um, so... Uh, Quite a lot of news about this one, actually. Um, tell us a little bit about private access um, to the AWS console, John. But before you do, uh, I, I just it's given me a bit of an earworm, uh, which is oh, yeah. uh, Tina Turner's private dancer. So every time <laughs> I uh, every time I read this article, I've got private dancer. Uh, if we had some amazing editing skills, maybe we could kind of dub that over the top of the podcast afterwards. But you're just going to have to use your imagination. <sighs> Or go and Google it. Um, I'm sure you'll find it. Uh, but, Can yeah, I recommend is... to the listeners to not do that? <laughs> yeah. oh, it depends. Grief. You know, some people like Tina Turner. They've even made a musical about her. Right. On message, shall we? Um, so, private, private access. Private, oh, private yeah, dancer. Not, pri not private dancer. Yeah. <laughs> private access. So private access as a whole is a service that came... It was announced at reInvent last year. It went GA a few months ago, and now they've added access to the console to this. Private access was a way of getting into your AWS account without going over the internet, TLDR. Right, that's the short version. Um, it means you didn't have to use VPNs and endpoints and all the rest of it. It just put your connection in there without you having to worry about any of that jazz. It made life a lot easier. Not so cheap, probably arguably more expensive than running a VPN, even an AWS client VPN, which they charge you for. But it meant that you didn't have all the complexity of OpenVPN or the rest of it, which not everybody has the skill to use. Cool. What they've done is they've added the console to private access. What does this mean? Well, this means that historically in setups where you went over Direct Connect or over a VPN connection between your on-premises network and your AWS account. Um, they would go kind of over the internet, but not really. Like you weren't accessing it through the public internet. You were kind of going through your data center and then down the pipe and then into AWS through their backbone. But the console, you still logged in through the internet. So you could still kind of access it and see it over the public internet. And that wasn't necessarily a problem but it did mean that security types got a bit of a wobble from it or say jobs where you weren't allowed general access to the internet for data security reasons or, or what have you it made life a lot harder for people that were trying to use aws i mean i can't think of anything off the top of my head where just general access to the internet was a problem but like i've worked in financial services i've worked with people that weren't allowed to have cameras on their phones if their phone was in their pocket on the trading floor that kind of thing so it sort of sits in that ballpark 
what this does is it means that again you are accessing the console GUI through your browser without using the public internet. So you're going in through your Active Directory, through your domain endpoints and through your DC and all the rest of it. And then you're getting the console without any of your traffic leaving your private secure little bubble. This is something interesting for a very specific subset of customer. And I'm thinking financial services more than anybody else. Maybe defense, government to an extent. I could see GovCloud regions using this quite a lot more than normal regions um, but it's it's that sort of customer that's going to want this and i've noticed it's only available in quite a small subset of regions at the moment i think it's about five uh us east ohio us east north virginia us west oregon europe ireland and asia pac singapore does that mean uh can you just kind of access those regions and then you've got access to the rest of aws or would you have to be running your resources in those regions? No, I think you'd have to be running your resources in those regions. So you'd be able to see the console for Ireland over private access, but not for London, hmm. which is interesting. So these are the regions that they always bring online first. If you've noticed, these are always the first five. They'll bring on a couple of US, a Europe and a Singapore, pretty much always. What's interesting about that is the way I see this, as I say, is it's finance shops and government those sorts of people tend to care about data sovereignty. So this is not something that um, Frankfurt uh, finance shops or London finance shops are really going to be able to use. Singapore is a fairly big finance hub, so that's going to get a lot of usage there. But yeah, it's an interesting one. I don't, given that it's available in those now, I would think it's going to come online to the rest fairly quickly as Frankfurt and London based companies are going to be, you know, I, I want my access. You're, you know, that kind of thing. I want my private dancer. <laughs> what you're doing here is showing your age. Yeah, uh, well, actually, uh, I think that uh, that music passed me by uh, in my youth. Uh, it's just something I discovered uh, when I did actually go and see the musical. So, yeah, I'm definitely showing my age. Uh, but, uh, it's because only old people go to musicals. Yeah, <laughs> although I can recommend uh, the, the Book of Mormon. Um, that's a good one for young people. Hilarious. Um, so, uh, but nothing to do with private access or private dancer. So let's uh, move swiftly on then Please. to the second uh, of our articles this week, um, which is uh, about some new EC2 instances that have been launched. Uh, these are storage optimized Amazon EC2 i4G instances, uh, which are powered by AWS's own silicon, uh, Graviton processors. Uh, and they have uh, AWS Nitro SSDs. Um, so um, I'm sure, John, you're going to come on and talk about some of the crazy performance that these things can <laughs> deliver. Uh, but, uh, yeah, tell us about these new uh, EC2 i4G instances. So there's a couple of things to take account of. What most people don't understand, unless you are kind of a nerd, is not all CPUs are made the same. Yeah, we, we sort of – we're getting there, I think, with with – Apple Silicon and Amazon Silicon and AMD versus Intel. But if you're kind of outside of that CPU walls sphere, you might not understand quite how important the chip is to your data transfer speeds because there's there's storage buffers and memory optimizers and all sorts of other bits of kit that sit on the chip that actually make more of a difference than you'd imagine because 
the chip is doing a huge amount of work just moving data around. If you look at, say, a high-performance NAS, it'll have an AMD Epic CPU, for argument's sake. And the damn thing will be absolutely slammed just moving files around because it's so heavy, heavier workload. What we've seen with ARM chips, be that Apple, Amazon, whatever, um, silicon, is they are very good for input-output and compute. This is an input-output job. It's just moving things around very quickly. They're less good for certain things, but they're very good for this. So what Amazon appear to have done, what AWS appear to have done, is they've taken the new Graviton 2 chips. They're not new. They're second gen. Third gen have come out. But they'll come out eventually to this. Paired them with these ridiculously powerful SSDs, which, again, have memory controllers and all the rest of it on them so that they can move speeds, move data around really fast mush them together and gone brilliant and then as you say i'm going to nerd out about these speeds here eight thousand megabits a second that's megabits not megabytes it's megabits a second so that's one thousand megabyte that's a gigabyte a second or a gigabyte a second of sequential reads that's incredible that's the same sort of speed that you'd get if you actually plugged in a nas to a powerful CPU, and they're doing it remotely, virtually. How? Who's designed the NICs for this? Like, Jesus. I think it is megabytes, isn't it? Because a big B. Bits is, is a small B? B. Yeah. Oh, okay. Which is uh, with a big see, B. It's even mad. more impressive. I know. it's eight times, eight times what you thought it was. <laughs> but it's eight, what, gibbybytes or yeah. whatever it is. It's not giga, gibby, but whatever. It's That's just insane. That's so fast. It's, so you think, who's going to use this? Who, who actually needs this sort of power? And the article, calling it an article is generous. It's, it's like not even one A4 page, um, is kind of saying that it's databases. Databases love fast, fast, fast storage because they're not storing it in memory, by and large, unless you're talking like Redis or whatever. Um, but that, that's an in-memory key value store. If you're talking proper databases, a relational databases in particular, they love fast storage. They love it. So good for that. Good for file systems, because obviously good for search engines for the same reason. Batch processing and streaming, again, because that's just thing coming in, coming out, coming in, going out. So it's, it's yeah, it's, it kind of answers the question, like who's going to use this, who's going to need this? It's Again, it's a specific set of customers, but it's incredibly powerful. And the speeds are just mad. Like, I'm honestly, I've got my gaming PC down there. I can't get those speeds locally, and I'm running Gen 4 NVMe ssds and uh third or fourth gen amd processor and it's just what and you can rent these by the hour so time to start gaming in the cloud uh, it doesn't have the graphic performance not yet i'm sure cloud they have gaming another, is an inter- another yeah. instance that does but uh, yeah probably yeah. cloud gaming is an interesting one and it's kind of not the purpose of this no one's ever really managed to make that work nvidia have come yeah. pretty close but didn't no one's Google, really made it stadia and then they killed stadia it. yeah yeah they killed yeah, it yeah. and i also read this morning that uh facebook has killed meta or meta has killed meta the metaverse uh, how very meta. they're moving on to generative ai like everybody else uh, but oh uh, yeah, yeah because there was that whole thing around the the vr metaverse second life type deal and i was just mm. really skeptical um, but people were dropping up millions on virtual property i'm just what are you doing meta dropped 36 billion on it and 
So I suspect there are a few unhappy shareholders. Anyway, we die. Uh, we digress. As and we often do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so um, yeah, so it is quite a short article, particularly uh, for one of Jeff Barr's articles. But I guess it's mm. all about the numbers, isn't it? The numbers speak for themselves. The only other thing I wanted to point out about this article was uh, I thought Jeff Barr had pink hair, uh, but the, I think he, he changes it regularly. Much more sober grey hair uh, in this uh, in this headshot. So uh, I think he changes yeah, it. I think he colours it for reinvent, doesn't he? So um, probably. So uh, this picture was obviously not taken at reInvent. Uh, anyway, moving on to the next article for this week. And uh, we're back in your comfort zone, John, of uh, serverless. Um, and this article uh, is about AWS Lambda for the containers developer. And uh, I did read it, and I'm not a developer, uh, so I didn't understand a lot of it. Uh, but uh, it is by um, developer advocate Massimo Riferi. Uh, who I do know, actually, personally. Um, we did a bit of, bit of work with him um, in my Stratagen days. Uh, he used to use our cloud platform um, for, uh, and he used to blog about it, which was very kind of him. Um, but uh, he's obviously still blogging. He's now doing it for AWS. He's no longer with uh, VMware. He's been at AWS for many, many years. Um, and uh, him and Chris Green would have put this article together explaining the differences of how to code for Lambda uh, versus how to code for containers. So, uh, John, I'm sure you can talk a lot more mm -hmm. about that than I can. Well, they're not that different from each other once you understand the mechanics. And this is kind of what the article's talking about in various points. So containers have an entry point. They have a thing that's called first, and then they can go off and call other things and, and what have you. Lambdas have the same thing. They have an entry point. It's a function. It's what the service calls. And that kind of makes sense when you think about it, because you might not have an awareness of the container that your normal Lambda is running in, but it is actually running in a container. That's why um, cold starts are a thing, because they've got to provision them and set them up and deploy them and then actually run your, your code, run the event against your code. So that kind of makes sense. And kind of what they're doing here is working out, and I love that line as well, that AWS Lambda runs on servers, exclamation point. We know it does, but we don't have to care. This is this is one of the funny things about serverless, is we all know that there's servers there, but we just don't care about them, which is the cool thing. But yeah, what this is doing is this is kind of saying, look, if you wanted to make your container look like Lambda, Here's kind of how you do it. You take this base image, you install these various bits and pieces, you pull down your code, you add in your startup script and your code, and you set the entry point for the startup script, and it launches. Brilliant. Where I think this sort of article is quite useful is, and I know one of our previous guests has blogged about this as well, is where you get people saying that they might be experienced software developers, but they've never serverless before, is how do you run this on your computer? You know, how do I get this running on my laptop? My traditional answer has been, well, you don't. That's kind of the point. But that doesn't always wash with people who have spent 20 years building server-based apps. You say, well, there is no server anymore. You don't, well, it is, but you don't care about it. And they just can't quite make that mental leap. This is kind of helping in that regard because it's saying, look, it's not this esoteric thing. It's not this obfuscated setup. This is actually what it looks like. It's running these scripts. It's got these entry points. It runs your code like this and so on and so on. And if you want to make a container that looks like the Lambda runtime environment, you can do that. They supply the tools for doing that. They supply the image that it runs in for the various runtimes because at the end of the day, if you're running in Python or node or go or whatever there will be a base image 
that your code is then kind of added into as part of the deployment process. And they supply those. So you can just go off and use them. And then on top of that, because you can do that, you can then run Lambdas um, using a container runtime. So you could have your runtime come down, build it in this way, and then run. And it all runs in exactly the same way as it would do anyway. So that's kind of what this is doing. It's it's showing kind of the low-level mechanics, and they say that here. It's a tour of the low-level mechanics of Lambda, where the execution model meets the programming model. That's a really nerdy way of saying you, you kind of build them a little bit differently than you would do, but kind of this is how it all works in, in practice. It's inputs go here, structure looks like that, magic happens, but there's no magic because here I've written it all down. It's just code. It's not that complicated. There's no magic. You disappoint me. No. You? I thought it was all magic. <laughs> I forget who said it, but um might have been an Asimov thing. Uh, science that is significantly advanced can be indistinguishable from magic. Butchering that quote, but that's kind of the rough idea. It looks mm. like magic because you just don't understand it. Yeah. But isn't that all magic? I mean, technically, yes. Yeah. All magic ever is... is um you know, it's either science that's so advanced you don't understand it, or it's sleight of hand and trickery. trickery this is yes. this is the you don't understand it rather than sleight of yeah. hand. Because yeah. there's even a GitHub project here so that you can kind of run the exercise yourself if you really feel like killing three days of, of your life. So I take it you don't. <laughs> no, I don't have three <laughs> days of my life to spend on this. Well, it's another three-day weekend coming up, in uh, not this weekend, but the following weekend. So, yeah, maybe it could be a little bank holiday project for you, John. Oh, I've got more important things to do, like uh, finally finishing off the serverless solar panel monitoring. Oh, yes, yes. Watch this space for that one. Um, cool, okay, oh, yeah, no, let's I move on I will wax then. lyrical about that when I finally manage to finish. I'm sure thing. you will. We could do a whole podcast about that. <laughs> Um, let's move on then uh, to uh, our next article. The, the, it's all AWS blog posts this week, by the way. I've just noticed as we're scrolling along here. Um, it's, a, it's quite a quiet week in the press. Or well, actually, it wasn't a quiet week in the press. There was just lots of articles all about exactly the same thing. Mm. <laughs> so, so we've uh, we've been leaning heavily on the AWS blog this week. Um, this uh, this post is from the AWS Compute blog. Um, and uh, it is about implementing cross-account CI/CD with AWS SAM for container-based Lambda functions. Um, so uh, staying with a similar theme mm. here, uh, but moving into uh, de cross-account deployment. And I know you're a big fan of uh, AWS SAM, um, so uh, tell us a bit more about this one. Yeah, I'm a fan of SAM because I tried to deploy Lambda through Terraform and just went, Ugh. This is awful. And I always, I never really liked the serverless framework because I always thought it tried too hard. I don't know. Maybe it's got better since I last used it and I do need to check. But I always thought it was trying too hard. But right. So, like the previous article was talking about how to write lambdas and how they kind of interface with containers and how a containers uh, developer is familiar with containers. It's not that far away from Lambda. This is saying, well, because you can actually run container images in Lambda, it's still subject to the same 15 minute runtime constraint but you can kind of run you know php and a lambda if you wanted to if you were that mad here's how you kind of deploy that across the across the stack because container image based lambdas look a little bit different from normal lambdas you still have to have the container repository which you don't with with regular lambdas and here's kind of a way a prescriptive guidance on how you can do that 
What it's doing, it's using SAM because SAM takes away, again, a lot of the nastiness of doing the build and the deployment because it will run your Docker file to create an image because you still have to supply a Docker file, but it will run the Docker file to create the image, push it up to the container repository. If the repo isn't there, it will make it, that kind of thing. So it takes away a lot of kind of the, the fluff around the edges that you really don't want to have to care about. However, those things are both regional and account limited. So they don't natively trust things outside of their region and outside of their account, which you'd expect, right? That's pretty normal. But to comply with best practice, people have development, staging, production accounts. So there's no kind of cross-pollution. So how do you get things from one account to another? Okay, you, you do it like this. You have code pipeline that does the build and the packaging. You have your artifacts bucket and your artifacts repository. You have those things being pushed to the relevant accounts. And then you have uh, roles that code build is um, assuming in those other accounts so that it can have permission in kind of both places. So it has access to your repo in your your tooling account, as they've called it there, I think, in sort of your central account, and it has permission to do the deployment in your target account, and it just kind of pulls it and deploys it into the relevant place. That's kind of one of the ways of doing it. It's probably one of the better ways of doing it, in my opinion, because we've seen this sort of thing before for other things, and what they end up doing is using things like um, image repositories and artifact repositories and kind of just cloning them around the accounts, which is, it's a way of doing it, but it means you lose the key benefit of having a solid artifact repository strategy and only having one um, image, one artifact once, which is one of the interesting things about this. It's one of the key things about this, I should say, is it's, it's taking the approach of you build it once and you deploy it in lots of places, as opposed to you build it repeatedly from the same commit point. So it's kind of, it's taking that view, which is kind of the one that I subscribe to as well. Very interesting, very long article. And realistically, um, I don't expect people to read most of it because it's so big. But the um, diagram up front is really the interesting part about this because it's uh, it's using all of the AWS uh, developer tools. You can do this with other things, but it's using the, the dev tools because it's an AWS blog. And it's kind of what you expect, but it's showing that it is possible to do this thing that is potentially quite awkward using the AWS tooling, which is nice. <clears throat> and I'm very happy that the uh, AWS blog editors must have been listening to our podcast because uh, this diagram appears to be using all of the current generation icons um, for all the services that are listed within it. So uh, well done, guys. Um, uh, that's what I'd like to see. Um, <laughs> and something else that, uh, that that piqued my attention when looking at this was I had no idea that Sam was a squirrel. Mm. Uh, has Sam Linux gets represented a, by I, a squirrel? I think so. I think so. Mm. But Linux gets a penguin. Why can't Sam have a squirrel? Sam can have a squirrel. I mean, it doesn't really obviously fit with the uh, style of all the other AWS icons, but, uh, you know, nice to see that cute little squirrel there in the, in the middle of that technical <laughs> diagram. So... Any idea yeah. why Sam is a squirrel? It's a nerdy squirrel. It's got glasses on. Yeah. <laughs> well, it looks... Yeah, I need to zoom in on it a bit because I can't see what's in the, in the middle of his belly there. Uh, what is that? Is that his hand? Is he holding his I, hand on I his belly? I think so. I think uh, so. So it, it looks like really saying, spent... I'm hungry. <laughs> I'm hu <laughs> give me all of your lambdas. <laughs> I'm hungry for code. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <clears throat> 
Okay, let's move swiftly on then from Sam the Squirrel to our final article uh, for this week's episode, um, which, uh, as I mentioned in our preamble, I read it about five times. And I still didn't really understand what they were trying to say, so I'm hoping you've got a better understanding of this article. But uh, there's an article on Reuters about uh, how the EU uh, is uh, drafting rules uh, to propose tougher cybersecurity labelling on Microsoft, Amazon uh, and Google. Um, I think this is all around if you... You know, if Microsoft, Amazon and Google uh, want to state that uh, data is being uh, hosted and processed in the EU, then maybe they're going to have to change uh, the way that uh, they structure themselves to do that. Um, but um, what's, what's your view on this one, John? So this feels like the Eurocrats Eurocratting again. You know, they, they, Europe, the EU is going to EU. This is kind of what they're going to do. They're specifically calling out Amazon, Google, and Microsoft in the article because that's kind of the people that people will be familiar with. But it does apply to any non-EU cloud service provider. So that's Alibaba, that's Tencent, that's Yandex, that's Rackspace, IBM, whatever. Um, but not people like, say, Hetzner. I can't think of any other EU-based ones, but that's kind of the idea. The French one that went on fire. Yeah, them. I don't think they're yeah. hosting much at the minute. <laughs> not, not in Strasbourg. Overash. <laughs> <clears throat> okay, if you say so. Mm. Um, <laughs> the idea is that the EU can label something with a particular kind of EU-approved cybersecurity label to say, stamp, this complies with our standards. And what they're saying is part of that standard is it must be majority controlled by an EU-based entity. And that means that Amazon, Google, Microsoft, etc., cannot by themselves earn this stamp because they're not EU based. They're not within the block. Interestingly, that means anyone based in the UK can't either because we are no longer within the block. If you want to have your particular thing with this stamp, you must be, and you're not EU based, you must be in partnership with an entity that is EU based and only be a minority partner. So Amazon can't own 60% of something and Hetzner own 40% and get the stamp. It would have to be the other way around. So it must be majority controlled by an entity primarily registered within the EU block. That's a lot of words to basically say they're kind of close-walling this a little bit to sort of say we don't necessarily distrust these companies but we don't fully trust them because there could be interference from nation state actors based on this data and we don't want to give it our certification scheme stamp to say that we're happy with this if there's the potential for interference there mm. Well, I guess it's just a draft at the moment so uh, we'll have to see how this particular debate pans out um, and uh, hopefully we'll pick up the uh, the final draft and the announcement uh, when that uh, when that is made um, over the coming uh, years over the coming weeks. Uh, well, no, it says that uh, the EU countries will review the draft later this month, after which the European Commission will adopt a final scheme, and then uh, no doubt UK government will just copy it. Uh, <laughs> what we do at the minute um, it's interesting though you're right because at the bottom there it says the latest draft could fragment the single market as each country has full discretion to impose the requirements whenever it sees fit so this is kind of one of the primary differences or i suppose one of the similarities between the eu and the us this would be the equivalent of a federal law for our us listeners that the states have then got discretion on whether they bother with it or not because hmm. that's kind of how the eu legislative system works is the um 
EU as a whole publishes some legislation and then it's up to the countries the member states to work out if they even want to bother implementing it and if they do how they want to implement it now even the gdpr which is kind of this big pan-european monster of a thing it is pretty well implemented by all countries the same way but they do have discretion on whether they want to modify it because the eu is not this overarching big banhammer type organization it's a well we want to do this as a group of bureaucrats to say that we think this should happen but then it's got to go through all the parliaments and all the governments and all the legislatures of every member state before it becomes in effect within that country so you could see something interesting like i don't know latvia lithuania just deciding now nah, we don't care about this speaking of lithuania and this is going to be another complete diversion uh <laughs> I recently purchased some secondhand lithium iron from Lithuania. Try saying that without your teeth in. Um, but uh, very pleased, very pleased with my secondhand Lithuanian lithium iron. <sighs> I know you've got nothing to say to that, John. So no. I think that's a perfect, uh, perfect uh, segue to wrapping up uh, this week's podcast. Uh, so uh, that was season two, episode 18, I think. 18. Uh, of Logicast. We'll be back next week uh, with episode 19 and we already have a guest booked in so watch this space um, and uh, that means that you and I will get to talk less next week, John. Uh, yippee! <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, yeah. Thanks for I've listening. Missed, I've, I've missed not having a guest. I've missed having a guest. We've only had it three times and yeah, I feel like it, I've got to fill so much more space. We need more guests. It need was to a do new two normal. At a time. It was it was the new normal, and uh, today wasn't. But uh, no, we've we've got plenty of guests in the pipeline, so uh, we'll be back uh, next week uh, with another guest. Uh, we'll see you again then. Thanks for listening.